Well, thousands of years ago, a Hebrew slave asked Moses, who made you commander and judge over us? Today, we may sarcastically ask, who died and made you king? Often a toddler's first word, or one of their first words, is no. A teenager asks, why? Why should I do that? And it was just a few years ago that we saw signs all over, at least this neighborhood, all over this city. Not my president. Who says? Why should I listen to you? We are all naturally skeptical, suspicious of authority. We chafe when someone acts like they have a corner on the truth, as if their truth should impact the way that we live. You know, when there's competing truth claims, we're encouraged, I think, in our culture today to live according to our truth. I mean, isn't that authentic living? And if someone else has a different truth, well, live and let live. You know, if that truth works for you, if it's not harming anyone else, good for you. The only real tragedy today seems like being a slave or living according to someone else's truth. That wouldn't be authentic living, would it? That wouldn't be true to you. So we say today, you do you, and I guess I'll do me. It's within this context today that we turn to the Bible this morning. I'd encourage you to turn now to the book of Titus. It's near the end of your Bibles. It's in the New Testament. And if you want to use one of the pew Bibles in the pews and the chairs in front of you, it is on page 1058. 1058. Titus was probably written in the 60s. Uh, uh, not the 1960s, like the 60s A.D. Uh, the letter was written by the Apostle Paul to his friend and ministry partner, Titus. And Paul had some unfinished business for Titus to complete on the island of Crete, the island of Crete, which is the largest island in Greece. So listen as I read the entire chapter, Titus chapter 1, and consider what God's word says about what is true and how we should live in light of that truth. So listen to God's word, the book of Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, that God who cannot lie promised before time began in his own time he has revealed his word and the preaching with which i was entrusted by the command of god our savior to titus my true son and our common faith grace and peace from god the father in christ jesus our savior the reason i left you in crete was to set right what was left undone and as i directed you to appoint elders in every town An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, 
Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Well, what is truth? And how should we live in light of this truth? Those are some of the fundamental questions that we're going to be asking in this little letter called Titus. We plan to do uh, go through this book in the space of three Sundays. This morning, we're going to tackle chapter one, which I just read. And God willing, later in March and early April, we'll take two more Sundays to look at Titus two and three. So even though the, the sermons on Titus two and three are like a month away, I have a challenge or an encouragement for you. If you have time this afternoon, it should only take about five minutes. Read the entire letter in one sitting. I think it will follow up very nicely on what we're going to consider in chapter one. So consider reading the entire letter later this afternoon on your own. Well, here in chapter one, I want us to see that God's truth create leaders create godly leaders who protect the truth. God's truth creates godly leaders who protect the truth. That's the main idea for this morning, that God's truth creates godly leaders who protect the truth. And here's my prayer for us as a church, is that we would doggedly hold fast to the truth and live in a way that is consistent with that truth. I don't know about you, but I have long been sick of fake Christianity. And if we fake it, we will not make it. So let's first consider God's truth in verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 again and consider, as I'm reading now, as I just read these first four verses, where does Paul ground his authority? Or rather, in whom does he ground authority? Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Verse two, in the hope of eternal life that God who cannot lie promised before time began in his own time. He has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God, our savior to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God, the father in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Did you notice how God-saturated these four verses are? Uh, we have the name of God five times in four verses, and he's alluded to even more than that. Now, first, in verse 1, look at verse 1. Paul identifies himself as a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's identity. It's inseparable from God and Jesus Christ. Uh, second, we see Paul's mission still in verse one. It's for he's serving for the faith of God's elect. Now, Paul was a Pharisee who's a very educated Jew. Uh, he wouldn't have made this his mission on his own, like on his own thinking. But Paul's no longer serving himself or his own interpretation of the truth. So here he is. Here's Paul writing an uncircumcised Greek and a bunch of Gentile churches in the islands, island of Crete, and he's calling them God's elect, God's chosen people. It must have been kind of weird for him, uh, as he had long before identified God's chosen people, God's elect, as only the nation of Israel. We're not even through verse 1 yet, but we're already seeing that this isn't Paul's truth, According to his background, according to Paul's sensibilities, God's truth has changed Paul. God's truth has changed Paul. It's reoriented his identity and his mission. So I think right away we should just consider, are we open to God's truth changing our identity and our mission? 
Are you open to God's truth changing your identity and your mission? Keep looking at verse 1. Paul's desire is that the knowledge of the truth about God and Jesus Christ would result in lives of godliness. In fact, this is how you identify the elect, right? Or at least how you should be able to identify who are chosen, who are elect by God. It's by their godly lives. Uh, truth is not just an idea. It's just not a set of beliefs that you intellectually assent to. Remember, Jesus himself said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father through me. So it makes sense that if we have a knowledge about him, that we will live like him. Right. Is, is your knowledge of the truth leading to a life of godliness? I wonder is your knowledge of the truth of the scriptures leading you to live a godly life. We'll be thinking about that a little bit more. Let's look at verse two. God's truth not only creates a servant who serves for the faith of God's elect, but Paul serves for the hope of their eternal life. And Paul grounds this hope in God's eternal unfailing promise. Friends, do you feel like you could use some hope today? I'd encourage you to look at verse 2 again. In the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. This hope is not wishful thinking. And therefore, it's not a gamble to go all in, to put all your chips in living for this eternal life. Because God's word is, has, and always will be a hundred percent dependable. Now, our God, the God that we're considering in these first four verses of the book of Titus, he is above time. He is the God of science. He is the God of politicians and presidents, pandemics, nations, finances, family, natural disasters, climate change, divorce, remarriage. He's the God of history. He's the God of truth. He is the promise making God. He's the promise keeping God. He is the God of life. And what kind of life is it? It's an eternal life and it's abundant life that comes from him, that flows from him. Why in the world are we so easily swayed by other hopes, by other life, by other truth when they don't satisfy clearly? But God has promised us this kind of life for all who are his. You know, maybe we say, well, that's all well and good, but it's not always clear that this hope, that this truth is real. It's not very tangible. Fair enough. It doesn't always feel that way. But maybe, maybe, yeah, God didn't entrust this truth to us in a way that we would have picked. But in his perfect wisdom, look at verse three. He didn't keep it hidden. He revealed it. He did it in his own time. And he did it through the means of preaching. I wonder if that changes how we think about our time together here each week. As we hear God's word. That God chose to reveal his word, his truth. In the preaching of the truth of the gospel. Might that change how we approach coming together to hear his word? Friends, the truth has been revealed. So what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with this truth? The truth changed Paul. Paul once served himself and his own truth. But by the command did you see that? The command of God, our Savior, Paul was entrusted with preaching the truth about Jesus Christ. So has God's truth changed you? Has God's truth changed you? There is a lot to think about in these first four verses. There's enough for a sermon, really, in each verse about God's truth and our hope. But let's not miss the main point of these four verses. Truth is found in God. He is not a means to the end of our happiness or fulfillment only. We were meant to serve him. 
just as Paul serves God and God is the one who chooses. He is the one who reveals the truth. He is the one who produces life, life that leads to godliness. He is the one who gives us hope in eternal life. He is the one whose word is dependable. He cannot lie. He's the one who makes promises before time began. This is the one who gives us hope that a world cannot take away. This is the one who fulfills all his promises to his people. He had a plan before the dawn of time. He's revealed his word. He chose the means and he's entrusted us with his commands to obey. Brothers and sisters, this is truth. The first word of this little letter is Paul. But these words are all about God. His purposes, his plan, his word, his command. And then verse four, his grace, his peace. Paul is devoted to God, his master and his savior. Are you? Are you devoted to God, your master and your savior? You know, if you're a non-Christian here today, we're so glad that you are here with us. And I understand if you're feeling a little uneasy right about now, uh, history is filled with people who claim to speak God's truth, God's honest truth for their own purposes. They, they twist God's truth to do awful things that serve them and their own power. You can think about it on a global scale, but many of us have been affected by it even in the home or in churches where God's word, God's truth has been twisted and it's hurt us. And sometimes in the places where we should be the most safe, in the home or in the church, uh, the abuse of authority in God's word is not an uncommon thing. So in this broken world, we are right to be wary of anyone who claims to, this is the truth with a capital T, get in line. But what do we see here? Is God a power hungry despot looking to beat us over the head with the KJV Bible? He doesn't use the truth to make our lives miserable. No, what do we see flow from God's truth? Verse one, a life of godliness. Verse two, the hope of eternal life. And then did you notice the end of verse three and four? Savior, a savior. And then verse four again, grace and peace from God himself. So whether you're a Christian, you consider yourself a Christian or or not, consider with me, is God's truth that we see here your truth? Has it changed your identity and mission? And then has it changed your heart? Have you known the kindness of God's truth in your life that he saved us, as Paul will go on to say in chapter two, not because of righteous things that we had done, but according to his mercy, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. An unbelieving friend, will you give God's truth a chance? We would love nothing more than to read the Bible with you and explore what God has to say in his word. So please talk to us before you leave. Of course, our prayer for you, if you do not know Christ, is that you would come to be a true son in the common faith, just as Paul identifies Titus, that you would come to an end of your pride of trusting in your truth and give your life to this truth that endures forever. Uh, This is the Savior that we all need. The truth reveals that we need saving and praise God that he did that by sending his son who's crucified and rose again so that we may have the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. Uh, This is the good news of God's truth. So we see in these first four verses, it's actually just one sentence in the original Greek. We see God's heart for his people. These are not just a bunch of theological ideas. Here's some truth statements. His truth is for our salvation and eternal life. This is truth that we can live by. This is truth that we can trust. This is truth to give us hope in the midst of a world that's filled with loss, with war, 
with tragedy, with illness and despair. And this truth creates something. It leads to something. Isn't that what we saw in verse one? It creates, we'll call it godly lives. Remember verse one? It's a truth that transforms us to serve God with a life that adorns the truth of the gospel. And that's what we're going to consider second, godly leaders. So God's truth produces godly leaders. Verses five through nine. So while verses one through four are jam packed with a bunch of theology, uh, starting in verse five, we get practical. What does that theology look like on hind legs? Uh, just as we see the truth of the person of Jesus Christ, so we see truth lived out among his followers. Uh, but before I read verses five through nine, I want to do a little exercise with you. So finish the following sentence in your mind. It'll get a little chaotic if you say it out loud, but finish this sentence in your mind or in your notes. A church leader must be. A church leader must be finish that sentence. What are some of the first things that come to your mind? OK, well, I'm going to just frame the sentence a little differently in case you drew a blank. Uh, the most important quality of a church leader is that he is. The most important quality of a church leader is that he is. So you have something in your mind. OK. Now let's hear what God's word says should characterize leaders in the church. Look with me at Titus 1, 5. The reason I, that's Paul, left you, Titus, in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And as I directed you to appoint elders in every town, an elder must be blameless. The husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot tempered. Not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful messages taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Uh, Paul left Titus in Crete, not because he forgot him. Sorry, Titus, I forgot to print out your boarding pass. But Titus is left there to complete unfinished business. Paul wants Titus to raise up elders in every town. In other words, this is probably what happened, although we don't know for sure. Paul probably went to Crete, preached the gospel. Churches sprang up in every town. Again, Crete's a big island. And uh, these churches, though, they don't have elders. The gospel's going out. They're doing church life, life together. But then Paul and Titus recognize these churches need some elders. And they need them like yesterday. Uh, so here in verses five through nine, we see what an elder is like. Um, and we're going to find out in the next paragraph kind of the occasion or why they need elders so desperately. Um, as we are walking through verses five through nine together, uh, we're going to mainly be, con- be considering what it says about elders. Right. That's that's what this is about. Uh, but I think if you call yourself a Christian, so if you identify as a follower of Jesus these qualities that we're, consider, that we're going to consider together should be true of you, too. They're, uh, they're the fruit of the Spirit, basically, and they're all throughout the New Testament commanded that believers in the Lord Jesus should be marked by these qualities. Uh, but mainly, we're going to be focusing on elders in this point. So first, though, uh, what is an elder? Verse 5 says we see that word. Uh, scripture uses the words um, elder, overseer, Bishop, shepherd, pastor, uh, all those words are, it seems, are used interchangeably. They're like not different offices. They're talking about the same thing. Someone who shepherds the church under Christ, so under shepherds, who, who preach the word, who correct uh, false teaching. Um, and the New Testament is clear that these leaders are men who meet these qualifications that we see here in Titus 1. We also see the same similar qualifications in first Timothy three. And we see a little bit of their job description in verse nine. Now, if you want to read more about what an elder does and what he's like, you can also, again, turn to first Timothy three or Acts 20 to, to hear a little bit more about that. Notice that Paul in verse five doesn't give Titus like a detailed process about how to appoint elders in every town process isn't as important to Paul as the person and what that person is like. 
And in this list, we're not going to go, don't worry, we're not going to go through each phrase, like each word one by one, because what I think we have here is a lot of overlapping traits, like holy, loving what is good, blameless. Like these things are overlapping when it comes to finding the right kind of man to serve as an elder. So think of verses six through nine as like a portrait of a godly man, a portrait of a godly man. Men who serve in Christ's church must reflect Christ's character. And elders are an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ, to obey him and to be blameless. Uh, blameless, well, is another way to say that would be to be above reproach. And I think that's the overarching category in which all these other descriptions are like bullet points under those things. Because we see blameless repeated twice, once in verse 6 and once in verse 7. Uh, I know for many of us, when we hear blameless, we're like, Titus is going to be looking for those elders for a while. Um, if that means like perfect without sin, uh, and they're never going to get any elders. Uh, but again, this is, this is not, it doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean like having arrived at some unattainable standard, but, uh, marked, uh, by, by grace, by love and these other things that we're going to consider. Well, let's look at verse six. Uh, what is an elder to be like first? An elder must be blameless. The husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. Now, verse 6 might immediately raise all sorts of questions for you. Does that mean that someone can't serve as an elder if they've ever been divorced? Do the children of an elder need to be Christian? Those are really good questions, but it's not the main point. We don't have time to address those things. Um, I don't want us to miss what is clear and clearly the main point in in these verses. What it's saying is that an authentic man of God is not one guy like with his church friends or in the world and at work and one guy at home, that he's not like double-minded, that he's consistently godly or blameless. And, and what Paul is doing is he's putting priority on the private life or on the home. To serve in God's household, he must be first faithful in the context of his household. It starts with fidelity or faithfulness to his wife and love and care for his children. Uh, so often we like to compartmentalize different areas of our life, like, you know, my work life, my life with my friends and my home life. But that's not how scripture sees it. Um, and a man may be a very gifted teacher, may, may, might seem like elder material at church. He's a gifted teacher. He's a great discipler. has a great personality. People are just drawn to him in the church. But if he's a lousy husband and a bad father, he's not elder material. You need to find someone else. Men, whether you desire to be an elder or not, I should say, we need to ask if these things are true for all Christians, particularly men in the home, how are you living with your wife and your kids? If you are a husband and a father, are you teaching them God's word? Are you reading God's word with your kids? Are you praying with your family? Could your kids or your wife say, that you are a godly man. Or for those who are not married, could those who know you best say, he's a godly man. Or for our sisters, in the, in, could your roommates or your extended family say, she's a godly woman. You know, here at Henson, we want to have a culture where the home life is not sequestered off from the rest of our discipleship and accountability. It is very appropriate that when we get together to encourage one another or when we ask about one another's lives, that we talk about the home life, Uh, that often we start there as we encourage, challenge, pray for one another and share challenges that are going on in the home. Well, just as an elder must be blameless in his private life at home, he must also be godly in all other spheres of life. And this is what we see in verses seven through eight. Did you notice, again, he repeats, Paul repeats blameless again in verse 7, and we move to, to what we're considering here as being controlled by God's truth in all areas of our life, in our character. Um, so we see in verses 7 and 8, five things that must not characterize an elder, and about six things that should characterize him. So five things that should not characterize, six things that should you know, I'll, I'll just pause to say just this or a couple weeks ago, 
a brother in a church made an appointment with me. He took the initiative. He said, I want to get together and talk about how I need to grow to be like an elder. Have you ever thought about that for yourself? As you look at this list, brothers, have you ever thought, okay, what do I need to work on? This brother and I got to have a conversation about what it looks like to have self-control. And that brings us to, I think, what we're aiming at in a church. The goal is not to be recognized as an elder. Most of us will never be elders. Uh, But the goal is to be like an elder, to commend the truth with our life. We are all called to live blameless lives that exhibit these kinds of qualities. Uh, This is what it looks like to live God's truth. He doesn't leave us to, like, figure it out. He tells us. And as we will consider in Titus chapter 2, what it looks like to live lives that adorn the truth of the gospel. So we have homework. We have homework. Verses 6 through 8. How do we need to grow? Maybe pick one thing. What's an area of my life that these descriptions kind of bring to the surface where I need to repent or I need to just ask a brother or a sister or a family member, hey, I need help. I need help with self-control. I need help because I'm struggling with greed. Uh, so find something. Circle something in your Bible. It's like, hey, this is what I need God's help in. And the means that God gives us is his church to encourage us. Now let me say this. Uh, some of you might feel a little beat up by these verses. You think, oh man. Got a, I, I, could, I could just circle all of them. Um, do you remember how David Fisher prayed when we installed Tim Mills up here? Maybe it was that like a month ago. David prayed that Tim would be a leader in the church in repentance. You know, elders, let me be clear. Elders are not those who have arrived. They, they are not perfect in these characteristics, but they are those who are walking humbly in confession, repentance, and who are above reproach. In other words, elders must not have hidden secret sins. I mean, all of us shouldn't have hidden secret sins, but particularly those who are leading in the church, who are overseeing and teaching the truth, must not be hiding in the darkness, different areas of their life. Well, we've kind of considered briefly what an authentic leader is like. But here in verse 9, we get a little bit into the job description. So verse 9, think of it as a hinge to the next paragraph. It still describes what an elder is like, but it also tells us now what he is to do. We see in verse 9 that an elder is holding to the faithful message is taught. That word holding, do you see that in verse 9, that word holding? It connotes a fierce attachment. You know, it made me think of like when you're playing with a dog and uh, like with their favorite toy, like maybe like one of those rope toys, and the dog just won't let go of it. Keep on yanking it and just like holding on to it fiercely. It's a fierce attachment. I, I hope you can picture that. When we don't let go of God's word, we have uh, an attachment to it, and this is how God's Man must be with God's word. And the purpose of that vice grip is not so like we can stand above the masses with our education and our theology and look at me, I've got all this figured out. No, what's the purpose? What do you see in verse 9? It's so that he can encourage others with sound teaching and then refute those who contradict it. I think verse 9 is really what sets elders apart. Uh, They have the conviction the fierce hold on God's word that enables them to both encourage and refute. John Calvin observed this, that a pastor needs to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for driving away wolves and thieves. I think this means that elders need to be able to teach well enough and clearly enough to correct Airs spread by others, or even in our culture. Henson, I just have to say, I'm so thankful for your prayers for the elders here. I know you pray for, for us, and we, we need it. Um, pray that we 
in light of verse 9, would remain tenaciously committed to God's word, that we wouldn't let go of it. That is our authority, not our own wisdom. It's this truth, that God's word would be ready on our lips and that our lives would demonstrate that this truth has changed our lives. And pray that our default, our default kind of modus operandi as elders would be, as one commentator I read on this, encouraging. That we would be encouraging. I think that's going to mean one thing in a bereavement situation. It's going to mean another in a church discipline case. But pray that we would be encouraging. Again, our prayer as a church is that we would be marked by authentic, blameless, godly lives. So pray to that end. Pray that we would be faithful and that we would walk in step with the Spirit. I pray that when people think of Hinson or when we think of our experience at Hinson, that we would think about verses 6 through 9 and that God may get the glory for the work that he is doing in us. So verses 6 through 9 give us instruction on what a godly life looks like according to the truth. But that begs the question, why? Like, why these qualities? Did the Apostle Paul just, like, sit down with his buddies and be like, okay, what are some, you know, whiteboard it. What are some good qualities of an elder? No, I think they're specific. Uh, look at, uh, look at um, verses 10 through 16. This is our third point, protect the truth. So this is what the elders are to do. Verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Christians are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. All right, let's do some text work real quick. What's the for therefore in verse 10? What's the for therefore? Well, look back at verse 9. Why are elders needed? Well, to encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. And here, starting in verse 10, we see that those who would contradict the truth They've already arrived. Unfortunately, their, their evil ship has already pulled into the port of Crete and their virus is spreading in these house churches. We see uh, that many of these rebellious people, full of empty talk, is that in verse, uh, right in verse 10, and deception were from the circumcision party. The circumcision party may have been Jews, who were teaching that you had to keep certain Jewish laws in order to be saved. So that is anti-gospel. That needs to be silenced immediately. But, you know, what's interesting about these verses is Paul doesn't spend his time, like, instructing Titus. Like, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, okay, this is how you're going to win an argument with someone from the circumcision party, because they've misunderstood this truth. It's, no, it's not about the finer points of theology here. Paul just calls them out, deceivers, full of empty talk. And, and he tells Titus that it's his job, along with the elders, to, verse 11, silence them. Verse 13, rebuke them sharply. Or if we were to go back to verse 9, refute those who contradict the truth. This is a difficult job to do well, uh, to protect God's truth from ungodly influencers. What I think is really interesting about what Paul says about these empty talkers, these rebels, these deceivers, is how they're so clearly a contrast to the man of God we considered in 5 through 9. Did you notice that? In, in verse 6, you have the man of God who is a blessing to his household. He is blessing. Where Verse 11, um, they are ruining entire households, these deceivers. You know, in, in verse Seven, we saw that the man of God is not greedy for money, but these guys are doing what they're doing to get money dishonestly. So it's the, the elders are meant to be the antidote or the contrast to these deceivers. There's supposed to be a clear difference, not just in their teaching, but in their lives. You, you know, 
uh, they didn't have they didn't have Internet and TV back in the first century. And so they would have teachers come in probably more often. I guess we still do this today. They would pay teachers to come and they would stay with them. But these guys who have come into Crete, they're frauds. They aren't teaching the truth that leads to godly lives. They're teaching lies. And we know that because of what it produces. They, these guys themselves, they're greedy. They're lazy. They're gluttons. They're committed to these Jewish myths and not the pure diamond of the truth of the gospel in the Savior. Look at verse 12 with me. At first, I was a little uncomfortable with this verse. I'll be honest. It seemed like Paul was stereotyping a whole culture. It didn't seem very loving or Christian. But uh, consider with me, I think, four points that will help us understand this verse in its context. All right. Uh, one, Paul is quoting a Christian. So he's quoting an insider, what he says about his own culture. OK, so, I mean, that alone doesn't seem to really make it right. But that's that's a point. Second, he's clearly using hyperbole to make a point. He's not literally saying that every Christian is greedy, gluttonous and evil. Uh, third, Paul and Titus obviously love the people of Crete. They, they have gone, they have, at great cost to themselves, they have brought the gospel to these people and they've lived among them. At least we assume Paul has. But certainly we see that this letter is a concern for the churches and the people of Crete. And fourth, I think sometimes we, we read things from long ago with our own kind of cultural framework and we have a hard time making sense of it. We are right. It is right to be sensitive against stereotypes. Uh, you know, but we should be slow to judge motives. Uh, we may be so careful not to commit the sin of prejudice, which is clearly wrong, that we fall off the other side and, we, and we're self-righteous and we judge. What is clear, I think, in verse uh, 12 and then as we go on to verse 13 is that Paul is fired up. He's not messing around. These are hypocrites who have infiltrated the church and they need to be rebuked sharply. And their poison must not infect the gold, the, the diamond, the truth of the gospel that's at work in these churches. Maybe right when you thought, Paul's kind of a meanie. He's not very nice. Look at verse 13. Yes, he tells Titus to rebuke the liars sharply. But again, what's the purpose? So that they may be sound in the faith. I think that they is the deceivers. While Paul may be strong against liars and hypocrites who would upset the church, here we see Paul's heart. Just as we saw God's heart with the truth, it was for, for the good of his people to save them, here we see Paul's heart. Even for those who are wreaking havoc in the early church, he hopes that they will be reclaimed by a sharp rebuke. And that's certainly clear in 2 Timothy 2. This is what uh, Paul says to Timothy. The Lord's servant must be gentle to everyone, able to teach, patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them, here it is again, to the knowledge of the truth. This is a delicate dance. How do you rebuke sharply, but also be gentle with those who are living out of accord with the gospel, who are teaching falsely? Pray for your elders, for wisdom in this, that we would do this, that we would rebuke sin strongly, but also be gentle and have the goal of the restoration of the sinner. And that's always the goal of, of church discipline, that the sinner would be reclaimed, even in very scandalous situations like you can read about in First Corinthians 5. The goal is so that that sinner's soul might be saved on the last day. Friends. You might think, oh, we're kind of safe from this. This was the early church. We don't really have this going on, false teaching, ungodly lives today. Uh, this, is, this is an intense danger. This is a, a word of warning that we need today. And if the elders fail, if the, if the church fails to protect the truth, consider the eternal consequences. Uh, one, the church is wrecked. Lives are ruined by, by people who would come in and use the church for their own financial gain or for their own influence or power. People see their lives and see you later. Two, 
Consider God's reputation in the world. People see those who claim to know God but deny him by their works, and they dismiss the truth. So it hurts the church, it hits the world, if the elders don't do their job and rebuke those living out of accord with the truth. But third, it hurts the individual who's spreading the the evil, the sickness. Paul's goal, again, is that that sinner would not continue in the sin that leads to eternal judgment, but that that sinner might be reclaimed. This is what's at stake in protecting the truth. There is so much at stake. And again, Henson, it takes the whole church to do the work of the church in protecting that pure diamond of God's truth from both false teaching and false living. Uh, So together, we need to warn members. As you pray for for members, and if you you know of someone caught in sin, who's entangled in sin, uh, it is your job to, to warn them, to bring them back. I hope you're fired up for the task, like Paul is, because of your love for the truth. Your love for the Savior. It's not easy. It's, it's not going to be fun. But this is a key way that we love God, love our neighbor in this broken world. You know, I was thinking about this a little bit. I, I went uh, to a Christian high school in Louisville, Kentucky. A Christian in the name. We had chapel every week. And uh, maybe this was your experience too. But a lot of enthusiasm at chapel about the Lord uh, by lots of my friends. Lots of um, dedications to Christ, lots of hands raised, lots of enthusiasm. And then I would often see their lives on the weekends, and they were living just as defiled as, you know, all those kids in the public schools. Um, I think in part, I think in part, I became apathetic towards the things of the Lord in high school and even into college because I thought, man, this all seems pretty fake. The truth doesn't seem to be all that authentic. You know, just a few weeks ago, I was talking to Val here at church, and she uh, she coaches basketball, high school basketball team, and uh, she, she her school played a, a private Christian school, and she said those those students and those parents they had worse attitudes, worse language, worse behavior than any of the other schools that they had played, and I think that rightly grieved Val because you know the, the name of Christ was dragged through the mud, his his reputation was besmirched. Um, When people call themselves Christians, but they deny him by their works, as we see in verse 16, what does the scripture say about those people? They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Pretty strong words. Unfortunately, Christ's name will continue to be dragged through the mud by those who claim to know God. It will always make the news when an influential Christian leader is caught in some scandal. It's just more ammunition for the world to say, see, told you. Just dismiss the truth about Christ. Those Christians are no different from everything they say. So let's pray. Let's pray that here in this church, that things would be different. Pray that we would be blameless like stars shining in a wicked and dark world of lies and evil. Pray for your elders here. Continue to pray for us that we would have wisdom in rebuking sharply and with gentleness, encouraging others according to the knowledge of the truth. And friends, pray that instead of getting caught in our sin, that we would drag it out into the light. That we would not, because we're all going to fall into sin. We're all going to struggle. As you look at verses 6 through 8, we're all going to struggle with these things. But the mark of the Christian is not being better in all these things, but it's being humble and repentant. Having the humility to take God's side, his truth, against your sin and asking for help. And not letting go of the faithful message. So not holding on to your own performance, but holding on to the faithful message. Uh, We know that secret sins don't just defile our consciences, but as we considered just a few moments ago, it hurts Christ's witness and it hurts the church. Well, we should conclude. 
authority has become a byword in our time. We hear authority and we think authoritarianism. And all of us, I assume all of us, have been hurt by the abuse of authority. And so we thought, we think, it makes a lot of sense to just go according to the culture's way of like, you know what? My truth. That's the best path. Can't trust other people's truth. It's hurt me. But this morning in Titus 1, I think we've considered a more authentic way. We have looked to the perfect authority of God, our Savior. God's message and his ways are not ultimately to serve our purposes, our timing, our preferences, but we are meant to serve him. And God's word is sufficient. We must live lives together that demonstrate that we've been changed by the gospel and live a life that accords with godliness. Uh, That must be true for all who call themselves Christians, and it must be especially true for our elders who are called to hold on to the truth through the encouragement of the church and the protection of the church. So will you live an authentic life as a servant of God? Will that be your identity? To live authentically as a servant of God? And will you live according to his truth? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do give you praise and thanks for your truth that sets us free. That sets us free from our enslavement to our sin, to looking for for truth, for love, for happiness in all the wrong places. But your truth comes in and shines and exposes the darkness, exposes our secret sins. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage. Naturally, we are timid. We are afraid. And so, Lord, give us the courage to drag our sin out into the light, to live lives of self-control, to be blameless. And Lord, we pray that we would be bold and passionate about the truth and love each other enough to rebuke when the occasion calls for it. Help us to be wise and gentle even as we do that. Uh, Particularly, we pray that you would give the elders of this church wisdom. And we pray that our hope as a church would be in the life that comes from you. Uh, Lord, you, we confess that you alone are God, that you alone are life. And we praise you as our great God. And we pray that you would have your way with us no matter the cost. We know this life is short. So help us to persevere in the truth until the great day when you call us home. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.